0: Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Winston Churchill, We Shall Fight on the Beaches Delivered June 40th, 1940 to the House of Commons Part 1 From the moment that the French defenses at Sedan and on the Meuse were broken at the end of the second week of May, only a rapid retreat to Amiens and the south could have saved the British and French armies who had entered Belgium at the appeal of the Belgian king. But this strategic fact was not immediately realized. The French high command hoped they would be able to close the gap, and the armies of the north were under their orders. Moreover, A retirement of this kind would have involved almost certainly the destruction of the fine Belgian army of over twenty divisions and the abandonment of the whole of Belgium. Therefore, when the force and scope of the German penetration were realized, and when a new French Generalissimo, General Weigand, assumed command in place of General Gamelin, an effort was made by the French and British armies in Belgium to keep on holding the right hand of the Belgians, AND TO GIVE THEIR OWN RIGHT HAND TO A NEWLY CREATED FRENCH ARMY, WHICH WAS TO HAVE ADVANCED ACROSS THE Somme IN GREAT STRENGTH TO GRASP IT. HOWEVER, THE GERMAN ERUPTION SWEPT LIKE A SHARP SCYTHE AROUND THE RIGHT AND REAR OF THE ARMIES OF THE NORTH, EIGHT OR NINE ARMORED DIVISIONS, EACH OF ABOUT 400 ARMORED VEHICLES OF DIFFERENT KINDS, BUT CAREFULLY ASSORTED TO BE COMPLEMENTARY AND DIVISIBLE INTO SMALL SELF-CONTAINED UNITS cut off all communications between us and the main French armies. It severed our own communications for food and ammunition, which ran first to Amiens, and afterwards through Abbeville, and it shore its way up the coast to Boulogne and Calais, and almost to Dunkirk. Behind this armored and mechanized onslaught came a number of German divisions in lorries, And behind them again there plodded comparatively slowly the dull brute mass of the ordinary German army and German people, always so ready to be led to the trampling down in other lands of liberties and comforts which they have never known in their own. I have said this armored scythe stroke almost reached Dunkirk. Almost, but not quite. Boulogne and Calais were the scenes of desperate fighting. The guards defended Boulogne for a while and were then withdrawn by orders from this country. The Rifle Brigade, the 60th Rifles, and the Queen Victoria's Rifles, with a battalion of British tanks and 1,000 Frenchmen, in all about 4,000 strong, defended Calais to the last. The British brigadier was given an hour to surrender. He spurned the offer, and four days of intense street fighting passed before silence reigned over Calais which marked the end of a memorable resistance. Only 30 unwounded survivors were brought off by the Navy, and we do not know the fate of their comrades. Their sacrifice, however, was not in vain. At least two armored divisions, which otherwise would have been turned against the British expeditionary force, had to be sent to overcome them. They have added another page to the glories of the light divisions, and the time gained enabled the Graveline water lines to be flooded, and to be held by the French troops. Thus it was that the port of Dunkirk was kept open. When it was found impossible for the armies of the north to reopen their communications to Amiens and with the French armies, only one choice remained. It seemed, indeed, forlorn. The Belgian, British, and French armies were almost surrounded. Their sole line of retreat was to a single port and to its neighboring beaches, they were pressed on every side by heavy attacks and far outnumbered in the air. When, a week ago today, I asked the House to fix this afternoon as the occasion for a statement, I feared it would be my hard lot to announce the greatest military disaster in our long history. I thought, and some good judges agreed with me, that perhaps 20,000 or 30,000 men might be re-embarked, but it certainly seemed that the whole of the French First Army and the whole of the British Expeditionary Force north of the Amiens Abbeville Gap would be broken up in the open field, or else would have to capitulate for lack of food and ammunition. These were the hard and heavy tidings for which I called upon the House and the Nation to prepare themselves a week ago. The whole root and core and brain of the British army, on which and around which we were to build, and are to build, the great British armies in the later years of the war, seemed about to perish upon the field, or to be led into an ignominious and starving captivity. That was the prospect a week ago. But another blow which might well have proved final was yet to fall upon us. The king of the Belgians had called upon us to come to his aid. Had not this ruler and his government severed themselves from the Allies, who rescued their country from extinction in the late war? And had they not sought refuge in what was proved to be a fatal neutrality, the French and British armies might well at the outset have saved not only Belgium, but perhaps even Poland. Yet at the last moment, when Belgium was already invaded... King Leopold called upon us to come to his aid, and even at that last moment we came. He and his brave, efficient army, nearly half a million strong, guarded our left flank, and thus kept open our only line of retreat to the sea. Suddenly, without prior consultation, with the least possible notice, without the advice of his ministers and upon his own personal act, He sent a plenipotentiary to the German command, surrendered his army, and exposed our whole flank and means of retreat. I asked the House a week ago to suspend its judgment because the facts were not clear, but I do not feel that any reason now exists why we should not form our own opinions upon this pitiful episode the surrender of the Belgian army compelled the British at the shortest notice to cover a flank to the sea, more than 30 miles in length. Otherwise, all would have been cut off, and all would have shared the fate to which King Leopold had condemned the finest army his country had ever formed. So in doing this, and in exposing this flank, as anyone who followed the operations on the map will see, Contact was lost between the British and two out of the three corps forming the 1st French Army, who were still farther from the coast than we were, and it seemed impossible that any large number of Allied troops could reach the coast. The enemy attacked on all sides with great strength and fierceness, and their main power, the power of their far more numerous air force, was thrown into the battle or else concentrated upon Dunkirk and the beaches. Pressing in upon the narrow exit, both from the east and from the west, the enemy began to fire with cannon upon the beaches, by which alone the shipping could approach or depart. They sowed magnetic mines in the channels and seas. They sent repeated waves of hostile aircraft, sometimes more than a hundred strong in one formation, to cast their bombs upon the single pier that remained, and upon the sand dunes upon which the troops had their eyes for shelter. Their U boats, one of which was sunk, and their motor launches took their toll on the vast traffic which now began. For four or five days an intense struggle reigned. All their armoured divisions, or what was left of them, together with great masses of infantry and artillery, hurled themselves in vain upon the ever narrowing, ever contracting appendix within which the British and French armies fought. Meanwhile, the Royal Navy, with the willing help of countless merchant seamen, strained every nerve to embark the British and Allied troops. 220 light warships and 650 other vessels were engaged. They had to operate upon the difficult coast, often in adverse weather, under an almost ceaseless hail of bombs and an increasing concentration of artillery fire. Nor were the seas, as I have said, themselves free from mines and torpedoes. It was in conditions such as these that our men carried on, with little or no rest, for days and nights on end, making trip after trip across the dangerous waters, bringing with them always men whom they had rescued. The numbers they have brought back are the measure of their devotion and their courage. The hospital ships, which brought off many thousands of British and French wounded, being so plainly marked, were a special target for Nazi bombs. But the men and women on board them never faltered in their duty. Meanwhile, the Royal Air Force, which had already been intervening in the battle, so far as its range would allow, from home bases, now used part of its main metropolitan fighter strength and struck at the German bombers and at the fighters which in large numbers protected them. This struggle was protracted and fierce. Suddenly the scene has cleared, the crash and thunder has for the moment, but only for the moment, died away. A miracle of deliverance, achieved by valor, by perseverance, by perfect discipline, by faultless service, by resource, by skill, by unconquerable fidelity, is manifest to us all. The enemy was hurled back by the retreating British and French troops. He was so roughly handled that he did not hurry their departure seriously. The Royal Air Force engaged the main strength of the German Air Force and inflicted upon them losses of at least four to one. And the Navy using nearly 1,000 ships of all kinds, carried over 335,000 men, French and British, out of the jaws of death and shame to their native land and to the tasks which lie immediately ahead. We must be very careful not to assign to this deliverance the attributes of a victory. Wars are not won by evacuations, but there was a victory inside this deliverance, which should be noted. It was gained by the Air Force. Many of our soldiers, coming back, have not seen the Air Force at work. They saw only the bombers which escaped its protective attack. They underrate its achievements. I have heard much talk of this. That is why I go out of my way to say this. I will tell you about it. "'Tis the gift to be simple. "'Tis the gift to be free."